You know, in the past few weeks and months, uh, there have been a large number of stories, it seems, recounting some pretty terrible suffering and persecution directed specifically toward Christians. Uh, I think of ISIS uh, beheading Christians on the beaches of the Middle East. I think of a recent story about some refugees that were thrown into the Mediterranean Sea, drowning. I think of the university students in Kenya who were killed as they slept in their beds, all for being a Christian. So it raises a question, how, how do we make sense of things like that? Uh, they seem kind of distant from us, maybe. Uh, but it raises a very important question. Where, when these things happen, where is God's love? Where is God's love? And you know, that's the question that has been raised throughout history, not only now, contemporary times when we see suffering, when we see persecution. In fact, uh, this is the dilemma, the same dilemma, the same questions that's raised in Psalm 89, verse 49, where the psalmist asks this, Lord, where is your great former love? Such a question uh, ends book three in the Psalms and provides the backdrop for the first few psalms we find at the beginning of book four. And that's where we're going to be today, uh, where God is revealed as one who provides provision, protection, stability, even in the most troubling times. So when we are faced with these perpetual doubts, uh, we can have assured uh, promises from God that we find refuge in him, safety in him. And that's the message of Psalm 90. So if you would turn there this morning, Uh, We're going to reflect on Psalm 90, uh, the entire psalm, to remind ourselves that only from a a disposition where we know God as our refuge can we begin to discern the the conflicting and often troubling contours of our human existence. And in this way, I've titled the sermon this morning, When God is Our Refuge. Uh, Our text is Psalm 90, and I want us to focus on this big idea this morning. When God is our refuge we find our true home. When God is our refuge, we find our true home. So if you've turned to Psalm 90, follow along as I read it this morning. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the whole world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn people back to dust, saying, Return to dust, you mortals. A thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by, or like a watch in the night. Yet you sweep people away in the sleep of death. They are like the new grass of the morning. In the morning it springs up new, but by evening it is dry and withered. We are consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. All our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan. Our days may come to 70 years or 80, if our strength endures. Yet the best of them are but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we fly away. If only we knew the power of your anger, your wrath is as great as the fear that is your due. Teach us, to number our days, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Relent, Lord, how long will it be? 
Have compassion on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen trouble. May your deeds be shown to your servants, your splendor to their children. May the favor of the Lord our God rest on us. Establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. As already mentioned, Psalm 90 comes at the beginning of book four in the Psalms. Maybe your uh, Bible indicates this for you. These groupings that you find throughout the Psalms are often indicated, uh, indicative of the themes, so a kind of shared theme that uh, this book of Psalms, these series of Psalms share, and they were identified and recognized and collected in these, these sectionings uh, as they were uh, brought together. Book four, where we find Psalm 90, is actually a grouping of Psalms that are used for corporate worship or for liturgy. Uh, these Psalms are prayers or recitations that the community would use in worship. Psalm 90, 91, and 92, specifically, reflect on God as the dwelling place or refuge of his people. In fact, uh, some commentators call these refuge psalms. Uh, Not really a technical term per se, but it identifies the main theme that spreads across these first few psalms here in book four. Psalm 90 specifically is the prayer of Moses, comparing the despair of human difficulties with the security found only in God's presence, a refuge. So today, by reflecting on God as the refuge for his people, four important truths speak to us. We discover what occurs when God is our refuge, the first of which we find in the first two verses of Psalm 90, verses 1 and 2, and it's this. When God is our refuge, our life is framed with true worship. When God is our refuge, our life is framed with true worship. Moses begins this prayer in Psalm 90 with actually a pretty comforting declaration of praise, uh, recognizing that God is a comforting place. He's a dwelling place. He provides security. And in fact, this is the launching point for this entire book of worship psalms, of liturgy psalms. In the face of the piercing question in Psalm 89 about God's covenant faithfulness, the prayer here in Psalm 90 redirects the questioning heart back to the source of all peace and joy and security. And when we find such a place, we can declare with Moses in verse 2, you are God. In verse 1, when Moses uh, places the entire context of the psalm in God's refuge, he uses this term dwelling place. And in doing so, he's drawing on a long history of Israel as a displaced and wandering people, uh, sojourning from the promised land since the time of Abraham, really, uh, enduring the degradation of generations of slavery in Egypt. Uh, capitulating with wilderness wanderings as a result of their disobedience. So behind Israel's story of national displacement, Moses brings up a very important point. There's another story, a story of Yahweh, God, preserving the patriarchs, emancipating the slaves, resolutely defending the nation throughout their conquest of the promised land, providing through wilderness wanderings in spite of their disobedience, evidencing his, his, his presence with miraculous signs and gifts. This is a repeated reminder actually throughout the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 33, verse 27 states this, the eternal God is your refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms. In fact, that's, that's the prayer of Moses at the end of the second giving of the law. Ezekiel eleven sixteen states this, therefore say, this is what the sovereign Lord says 
Although I sent them far away among the nations and scattered them among the countries, yet for a little while I have been a sanctuary for them in the countries where they have gone. Moses adds to this chorus of verses praying this reminder for the people of God. God is our dwelling place. God is our refuge. And this refuge, in fact, is unlike any other. Uh, He mentions this in verse 2. He is the singular, singular God of the universe. He controls all creation. When Moses proclaims the mountains were born and the world was brought forth, he's affirming God's absolute control over every aspect of of creation. While the language here probably indicates the mountain, the earth giving birth to the mountains here in verse 2, it's still evident that the immediate cause of all these things is God himself. There's no question that God exercises a purposeful watch over all created order. And there's no corner of the universe that's outside of his sovereign care. And this sovereignty leads Moses to a confessional affirmation at the end of verse 2. And and in fact, it frames the entire rest of the psalm and the, the, the following psalms. He uses this same theme again and again. In the face of all other claims, all other distractions, false deities, false worship, Yahweh is God alone. There's none beside him. No idol can offer security. Uh, There's no satisfaction found anywhere outside of the creator of the universe. And such a clear statement here at the beginning actually provides a perfect foil for what Moses will then continue to write about, uh, giving some pretty discouraging notions, but some important notions for us to reflect on. But this first point this morning about God, uh, our life being framed by worship, raises some important questions. Most obviously, who is your God? What do you worship? Uh, It seems like we're constantly drawn away from the glory and splendor of God alone. Uh, We're constantly tempted to believe there's satisfaction found in other places and in other things. Um, Yet, let me break it to you easy. It's a lie. It's a lie. Uh, Even the relationships and hobbies, uh, distractions that may bring us pleasure in life are symbolic of the ultimate pleasure found in God alone. Everyone's life pursuits must acknowledge and submit to this wholehearted life of true worship. He is our refuge, and when we find refuge in him, our life is framed by true worship. Because I I, I intentionally say true worship because I don't think we realize that we're constantly worshiping something. We don't ever stop worshiping. Uh, We don't stop at some point in our lives ascribing worth or value to different things essentially the, the fundamental meaning of, of worship. So the question is then, what do you value the highest above all other things? Today, right now, in this moment, as you're looking at me and thinking, I hope, what do you value? Is it God? When we find our refuge in, in God, our lives are drawn to true worship. By beginning the prayer this morning with such a, a clear praise and recognition of God as refuge, he, Moses frames the entire discussion. Yet, there is a pretty drastic change immediately in verse 3, and Moses proceeds then to address the realities of life that all of us know and experience in light of God as a refuge. And in this, we discover the second truth this morning. When God is our refuge, we cannot avoid our fragile, dependent existence. We cannot avoid our fragile, dependent existence. And we see this in verses 3 through 6. 
So while Moses begins his prayer with a declarative statement of worship and praise, uh, God is a refuge, a dwelling place, a very positive expression. He immediately makes a pretty quick turn, uh, a rather depressing turn, turn in many ways. He paints a, an increasingly bleak picture of human existence through the verses three through six and even beyond that in the next point. In these verses, uh, the context of our great God who upholds all creation he then paints this picture of fragile, finite creatures living a transient existence by permission of God himself. Uh, consider these statements in verses 3 through 6 uh, about the, the transient nature of our life and, and the high worth of God. Consider the ongoing trends in our culture where people try to resist aging. Uh, surgical enhancements, uh, photoshopped visual histories, I call them, uh, we try our best to slow down aging. I know uh, my family works really hard to have the perfect family photo, right? To post to Facebook or if I'm too old, if that's too old or whatever Instagram or whatever social media you might use, a visual history that's perfect. That's what we want. And in many ways, that just is a modern reiteration of this perennial fight that humans have against the slow decay of time. Moses' prayer is a, is a helpful reminder of the triviality of our human existence, especially in light of God, especially when we know and find refuge in the eternal God of the universe. God's eternal existence and steadfast covenant-keeping love for all creation in verses 1 and 2 starkly contrasts the bleak picture of our human existence, beginning in verse 3. So consider the contrast. Well, God is a spirit upholding all creation. God is eternal. God controls the rhythms of all things. Man is dust in verse 3. And he returns to dust under God's wrath. Uh, it's a fitting reference for Moses to use this, this idea for dust. Consider the contrast, the mountains, this ground being shaped and formed in verses 1 and 2 because man, while possessing the image of God, comes from the same dirt. This calls to mind the story of Genesis too where, where we were, man was created, man was shaped by God's hands and and the breath of life breathed into his nostrils. Job uses the same imagery when he reflects on the brevity of his life. He says this in Job 34, 15. All humanity would perish together and mankind would return to the dust. And this in light of God is, 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 the, is the, the context of Job. He's again reflecting on God versus man. And this is the conclusion Job comes to. And this is the conclusion all of us should come to. This liturgical prayer here penned by Moses, confirms our corporate destiny as humanity, death, and a pretty short life, a short life that leads to death. Isn't that cheery? And if that description were not enough uh, for Moses to give, Moses reminds us in verses four and five of the timeless magnitude and enduring beauty of God in contrast of man's brief and fleeting life. Verse four, a thousand years is like a day to you, God. It's like the timelessness of a sleeping mind. That's what's referenced when, when Moses mentions this watch of the night, the time when most people were asleep. Uh, and we all know that time passes pretty quickly when we're asleep or we perceive it differently, right? We, we never can sleep enough. I know I feel that now that I have kids. I can never sleep enough. Uh, my wife sleeps in the car when we drive or when you fly. People like to sleep on the plane, right? Because time seems to go so much faster, so much faster. Uh, Please understand here, this isn't a literal kind of one-for-one one comparison. A thousand years equals one day to God. That's not really the purpose here. That causes a lot of problems and misunderstandings. Uh, 
the point of it is this. If we were measuring the span of our lives against God's existence, we only frustrate ourselves. <laughs> the comparison is like that of Isaiah 40, verse 15, where the nations are said like, are like a drop from a bucket and as dust on the scales. It puts our world and our life in context, uh, our time span, then compared to the span of, et- of eternity. This is humbling to our pride and it is heartening when we take refuge in God because God intervenes on our behalf. God is faithful. And verse, uh, verse 5, though, continues uh, this kind of comparison when, when it communicates the idea that God sweeps away all men with as little effort as one would burn dry, dead grass. Man's beauty, swift, fleeting, momentary, uh, and indeed the kind of the abrupt metaphor change in verse 5, in fact, adds to the sense of insecurity that we should feel as human beings, this flux, this unsurety, a sweep away here is actually more literally flood away, as if a, a rainstorm or a swollen river that just removes everything in its path. This is the God we stand before, and this is the God in whom we can take refuge. We are fragile, dependent creatures, and we must take refuge in this God. So who or what then is your dwelling place or refuge? Where do you run when life is too hard? Uh, Parenting or your job or finances, you know what it is. When life becomes difficult, where do you go? What do you go to? Moses, in brief, paints the picture here for us. It's very helpful of a sovereign Lord over all the universe as the the starting point to gauge our human experience. What What better place could we possibly hope for to find refuge than the God of the universe? And knowing this, though, unmasks the tragedy of our fallen and and sinful existence. Knowing this deepens the tragedy when God's children are drawn away in unfaithfulness to false gods, to false hopes. Uh, we consistently believe that we can find hope in other things. Uh, popularity, accomplishments, some human relationship. Uh, maybe we can find security in those things. And it might be brief. Maybe you do. But it's not lasting. We will eventually be deeply disappointed. It will happen. I guarantee it. God's word declares it. But when we make God our refuge, the Spirit of God faithfully reveals the brevity of our life and we run to him for grace. We will grow in our love and desire for him as we grow in our understanding that we are utterly and completely dependent on him at all times. We gain a vision for God's enduring presence when we understand how fleeting and frail our life is. Not only does God our refuge frame our life with true worship, you are God, Moses declares. And it confirms our fragile, dependent existence. We're dust. We're swept away like dead grass. There's another truth, a third truth revealed here in this text. And it's actually something that's pretty terrifying when you consider it. And it's this. When God is our refuge, we see his righteous wrath against sin. We see his righteous wrath against sin. And that's in verses 7 through 11. You know, these middle two ideas, human fragility and God's wrath, are 
very closely related, and in poetry, it's, it's a poetic device. They're intended to be slightly unresolved. Uh, that's kind of hard for us. We like things to be resolved and easy and simple. Uh, but realize it's intended to jar us to recognize God's glorious existence and God's glorious presence. So again, Moses is framing this discussion with the, with the context of God as refuge. A presence that, that's completely holy, God is completely holy, and he's unable to bear the side of sin. I think as Christians, sometimes we forget that. God cannot stand sin. And this poetic device here raises deep and troubling questions, really. Seemingly without any resolution. And it prompts the reader to look for a solution, look for an answer. And indeed, today, it's pretty unpopular to affirm God's wrath against sin. But let me break it to you. We serve a wrathful God. The sinners we prayed for, the unregenerate that we prayed for this morning, are under God's wrath. We have a responsibility to share Christ. And if we don't understand our frailty, frankly, in verses 3 through 6, the previous notion, we won't ever entertain the notion that God is wrathful. Why would we, why would we be worried if we think we have the power to control our own fate? But the moment we understand our dependence, our frailty, we immediately recognize we are accountable to someone else. We often think, oh, God can't be too angry, can he? I mean, he's not, like, mad. He's not going to go Old Testament on us, right? I mean, that's the phrase, the turn of phrase. I'm not that bad. I mean, you're not that bad. I'm okay. You're okay. We're all okay. Sometimes we're not okay. Sometimes we're not okay. And that's what Moses is pointing out here. Sometimes we're under God's heavy hand. And in the face of God's wrath, what can man do? What are we supposed to do? And that's the dilemma of these verses. And the closer we are in true fellowship to God's presence, the more we understand the depths of God's hatred towards sin. Consider the language of these verses. Verse 7, we are consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. That's a pretty terrible position for humanity. Uh, Moses, again, while he references dust in the previous section, he is alluding to creation. This reference also ties directly to the next chapter in man's story after creation, and that's the fall in Genesis 3. Creation to fall is the tragic progression of man's history and explains the evil in this world. Evil exists because of the fall. God's declaration here in this, in this passage, out of dust we came, Genesis 2, and out of dust we will return, Genesis 3. All men face the same fate, just as there are common blessings. There's a common grace that God bestows on all human beings. There is a common curse, a common dilemma that all humanity and all creation shares. Romans 8, 20 echoes this unequivocally. All creation was subjected to God's curse. Psalm 90 then is describing life under this common curse, and that is God's just response to sin. Uh, it is this common anger, indignation, wrath that's referenced in verses 7 and 9 of the passage today. Such wrath and wasting away would certainly have been very evident to Moses. Consider the context. Recall how Moses and Israel wandered in the wilderness just hopelessly in some ways. It probably felt hopeless at times, and I think their, their story reflects that. They, they wandered as a direct result of hardened disobedience. 
an entire generation cut off, save a select few who were obedient. They died, not by natural decline, but because of well-deserved judgment against sin. In fact, sin comes directly into view in this passage in verse 8, and it reaffirms, I think, what most of us fear a great deal, even as believers. And that is, any hope of hiding any sin from God is a waste of time. It's a fool's errand. Our deepest, darkest secrets are laid bare before the God of the universe. Again, what can man do? And it, you, there, you cannot hide. There's no hiding. What can man do? Moses' chief aim here in focusing on this terrible truth is that men might learn to fear God. And terrified by wrath and imminent death, humble themselves before God and prepare themselves to receive divine grace. Man cannot be moved to fear God unless he has first been shown God's wrath. Martin Luther puts it this way. Moses here stresses the tyranny of death and of God's wrath since he shows that human nature is subject to eternal death. He does this for the purpose of terrifying, hardened, and unbelieving despisers of God. Do you understand God's hatred of sin? You know, I want to be careful. I, uh, I fully appreciate the believer's change of position before God. Understand that. I know that. I affirm that. I proclaim that to you today. Because of the work of Christ, there's no condemnation. That's the way the New Testament describes it. For the believer, a change of position. However, I still wonder if we don't recognize that God hasn't changed. His final statement toward us has changed, but he hasn't changed in his disposition towards sin. His disposition toward the believer has changed. So, believer, child of God, do you allow God's spirit to convict you or have you forgotten what Christ has done for you? We often resist the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, in fact, that's in some ways an abiding sign of God's feelings, disposition towards sin. And that's a, a sign of love and faithfulness on his part to purify us. That's a goodness from God. That's a grace, a heavy grace, but it is a grace. We forget the wrath we were released from. It's hard for me, frankly, uh, just because of how young I was when God called me out of sin. You know, often if we don't have these long life stories where we were just dramatically called out of sin, we have a hard time wrestling with what did God really save us from? This is what God saved us from. God still feels this way about sin and it is so gracious and kind of him to call us and redeem us through his son. And as he convicts us as his children, it's a sign of love. Hebrews 12, verse 6, the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. With that in mind, do you really think, do you really believe God sees your deepest desires and thoughts and intents? Can God really see everything? Psalm 90 confirms there's no hiding from the light of God's presence. The closer we are to the light of his presence, when we take refuge in him, in fact, the more disgusting the dark filth of sin becomes to us. So while it might seem heavy-handed to talk about wrath, when we are close to God, we don't want to sin. 
Because very simply, you're either killing sin or sin is killing you. There's no middle ground. And the closer, the more we take refuge in God, the more we are aware of the way he feels about sin. It motivates us to share the gospel and it motivates us to pursue righteousness. It is a gift that the Spirit gives to us. So while there is peril and trouble, when we are faced with God himself, we see his wrath, we see frailty, we also find a great promise in God. In the face of our passing existence and the righteous wrath of God, Moses doesn't leave us unresolved in some way. Moses reveals the tonic to our dilemma. And that's the fourth point this morning. When God is our refuge, he brings us satisfaction. He brings us satisfaction. We find this in verses 12 through 17. And in fact, Moses is drawn and driven in this prayer kind of in an exemplary way to the way we should all respond when we're faced with our frailty and we're faced with God's wrath against sin. What do we do? And Moses gives us the example. We run to God. We pray for his wisdom, his satisfaction, his joy, his solution to our problems. Moses prays for the remedy against despair. And he gives us the example so that we might not succumb to this kind of despair. In it, we hear Moses perform his his special office in some ways, the law, uh, terrifying sinners. And though in an obscure way, he still points to divine redemption, grace we find in God alone, in Jesus Christ. And he does this to humble the proud and console those who have already been humbled. In direct contrast to human frailty and a life of, of so few years, 60 to 70 years is what Moses writes. Moses reaffirms a consistent message here in verse 12 throughout the Old Testament. Pursue wisdom. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. So with the full weight of the truth of how short and futile our lives are, we must take stock of how we gauge the success of our very brief temporary existence. We must budget our days to pursue wisdom, to pursue serious godliness, the ultimate form of wisdom. The book of Proverbs perpetually affirms the immense value of wisdom, uh, uses language of, of it's worth more than silver or gold. All of life's pursuits always make it the vision of your life when, when Solomon makes these appeals to his son. Give up everything if you have to for wisdom is the consistent message of Proverbs. Proverbs 2, verse 6, reveals, though, the source of this wisdom. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. We live such brief brief lives, such short lives. Don't waste any of it pursuing selfish and sinful ends. Because here in Psalm 90, we're reminded that God is our refuge. And and God alone, we can can find satisfaction. Because the pain of life and the trouble of life can often overwhelm us. So as we pray and we seek God alone, God is able to replace our frustrations with satisfaction. Consider verse 14. Uh, We're challenged to pray, satisfy us each morning with your unfailing love. It's the same language, the same question raised in Psalm 89. God, where is your unfailing love? Here in Psalm 90, Moses says, Lord, satisfy us with this same unfailing love. And in fact, the word for the love here is the covenant-keeping love. 
the covenant faithfulness of God to his children. Satisfaction is a real hope in this life. I know sometimes it feels really hard to chase down. It feels hard to to accomplish. But the psalm here promises us that only as we seek God, we we can find satisfaction. And Psalm 30 verse 5 also affirms this. When, when the psalmist writes, his anger lasts only a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. Weeping may last through the night, but joy comes in the morning. And this satisfaction we hope for is found in God alone. And it's not passing. Because the, again, the psalm says, satisfy us so that we may be glad all our days. All our days. That's the kind of satisfaction God affords. It's a complete reversal of all our sorrows and trials. And only God can replace our misery with this kind of gladness. And and Moses asks for God, prays for God to make the the years of trouble, the years of good as many as the years of trouble. And only God can fulfill this promise. Verse 15 states, Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us for as many years as we have seen trouble. Surely Moses here is referring to the the wilderness. And on a very human level, that would have felt like a wasted 40 years, right? I mean, that would have felt like a real waste of time. And Moses prays expectantly that God can and will make sense of, redeem, buy back the trials and pains of life. Not only this, but in place of God's wrath, what we mentioned before, we can also experience his work again. That's the language that Moses uses here, the phrase in verse 16. May your deeds be shown to your servants, your splendor to your, their children. This is the promise of dwelling with God, of refuge found in him. He replaces pain and trouble with his favor. favor. He reveals himself to us by his grace and mercy. So then we are able to make this final request in verse 17. May the Lord our God show us his approval. Is the language that's used here. And this, this approval here, don't misunderstand, isn't uh, just kind of a favorable, favorable disposition that God has because of the things you've done or the choices you've made, the wise life that you've lived. This isn't Moses asking God to put a seal of approval on the things he does. No, that's uh, not, really, not really what Moses is praying for. And that's not really how sovereignty works even. Uh, a sovereign God doesn't simply make good all the choices that we make simply because we make them. Things don't happen simply because, uh, simply because we, we make a choice and God approves what we do. In fact, reflect on scripture. God used Pharaoh. Uh, I don't think Pharaoh had God's favor. God used Samson. I don't think God was pleased with Samson, Samson's disobedience. Don't confuse usefulness with God's favor. No, if anything... This final verse in Psalm 90 makes a poignant appeal for God to confirm Moses' righteous standing before him. To confirm the works of one, one's hands, the, the language here in verse, verse 17, is an appeal for God to provide a blessing that matches an inward righteousness. A righteousness that comes from Christ alone, we know. When we seek refuge in God, he confirms our standing before him. He brings satisfaction. We don't wonder about our standing before him. The wrath becomes clear to us, but yet we have the solution. We understand his disposition towards us has changed. So this raises some important questions. Is your life dedicated 
to the pursuit of true wisdom. Again, I want to reiterate that our only hope in this life is found in Christ. I understand that uh, we pursue goodness and faithfulness uh, only by the power of his spirit, his work accomplished on our behalf. Yet, wisdom must be pursued. Uh, It's kind of a tension in scripture. Uh, God empowers us, but yet we must act. And often in life, we're tempted to pursue what seem like wise paths. A comfortable retirement, uh, an accomplished career, a life of adventure, a life without regrets, meaningful experiences, sexual freedom, the list goes on, right? And not all these are inherently wrong paths, but they're also not always wise paths. Money, uh, relationships, experiences, they're instrumental goods uh, used to, to, intended to be invested in the pursuit of godliness, in the pursuit of Christ alone. That's a life of wisdom, a life spent in the pursuit of God's glory. Also, what satisfies you right now? Again, the same question I raised uh, earlier. What do you run for for comfort when life's difficult? Moses gives us an example here that the only satisfaction and joy to be had in life is had in God alone. When we seek refuge in him, we find satisfaction in him. Also, I I think all of us want our life to mean something. We want significance. And that's, again, it's not inherently a bad thing. But also realize if we want our life to mean something, to count, we must understand who does the accounting at the end. What will truly count for eternity? In the face of an existence uh, of withered grass and dust, the first section of the psalm, the, st- the psalm ends on a, st- a strong chord that we, our life can mean something as we pursue God's best, as we pursue God alone. I began this morning with some very troubling reminders of the struggles, of the sufferings, persecutions of Christians around the world. And it raises the question, in the face of all this, and even the troubles of our lives, I think we're tempted to ask, God, where is your love? Where are you? We are not abandoned by our creator. There is difficulty, yes, but God is a refuge. He didn't leave us to our our fate. He redeems his children. He is our refuge, even in the face of very confusing and troubling circumstances. We've learned several truths this morning. When God is our refuge, our life is framed by true worship. You are God, Moses declares. We also can't avoid our fragile, dependent existence. We are dust. We see his righteous wrath against sin. Yet there is hope, thankfully. When God is our refuge, he brings us satisfaction. We find our true home. Let's pray. God, you are so faithful and kind to us, and we are thankful for this. We're thankful for your word that provides wisdom and grace to us. We are thankful that you are a refuge in times of trouble and that when we take refuge in you, our life makes sense. We begin to process your goodness and kindness toward us. We trust in you for life's
deepest troubles and trials and we find satisfaction in you. I pray that we would go away from this place resting in you, that your spirit would move in us, give us hope and peace, even in the midst of trouble. We are so thankful for your son Jesus who who died for our, our sins and rose again to give us new life. And it's in his name we pray, amen.